Well, Romans chapter 1, I, I have to preface this message today by saying this is not going to be your traditional Mother's Day message. If you've been reading ahead in Romans chapter 1, you know what I'm talking about. Um, where we're at in the, the study of the book of Romans, we are in the section um, on the wrath of God, and I talked about that last week, and some of you said that was amazing. Some of you said, Pastor, I'm confused. Stick with me, all right? Um, we're going we're gonna to build on that idea in the weeks ahead, because really the section that we're in on the wrath of God, it builds a, a backdrop, if you will, for where we're going next, which is a focus on the grace of God. And we can't understand the grace of God, and we can't understand the depth of his forgiveness unless we understand what we've been forgiven from. Now, as I was thinking about this, actually this is a really good place to be on Mother's Day because this passage we're going to read today, it speaks of the consequences of rejecting God. It talks about the sin that follows when we reject God. And I know some of you moms, you're, you're parenting some, some very young children, and so some of the things that we're going to talk about aren't even on your radar, but there is this connection, and you're going to see it, that a lack of the knowledge of God or a resistance to God um, re- reveals itself in this downward spiral of sin. And so I'm hoping this message might encourage some of you moms to stay in the fight, to to keep on praying, amen, to keep on loving on the the children God has given to you. It is so important, parents, that you lay a godly foundation, and today we're going to see why. Now, I have to say this about our text. It's also just a very difficult text. And it's not a a difficult text because it's hard to understand. As I read it, you're going to see it's very clear. But what makes it difficult is that it says some things that are directly opposed to what our society is saying right now. And so some of you, are, you're going to have to make a decision in regards to what has authority over your life. Is it the Word of God or is it the message you get from culture? You see, if the Word of God is our authority, then we need to look at the world around us and what culture is saying through the lens of the Word of God. And yet there are many liberal theologians, I'll call them, <laughs> who look at the Bible through the lens of culture. And so they'll say, well, Paul was writing to a different culture. Certainly the things that he wrote about 2,000 years ago don't apply to our culture right now. But here's the amazing truth. I want you to hear this. As we look at this letter that was written some 2,000 years ago, what you will find is that this letter is probably the most contemporary and the most continuously up-to-date human document that's ever been written. This letter is written to a very small but growing church in the city of Rome. It was a city at that time that was probably the largest in antiquity. It had about a million people. And so Paul's writing the letter, remember, on his third missionary journey, he's writing from Corinth. Corinth was a a place of idol worship. It was a place of of sexual immorality in that time. And so he's writing from Corinth to Rome. And, And here's what we can see clearly. As Paul describes the moral climate of Rome then, it almost exactly describes the moral climate of New York City today. It's amazing. There's this saying, maybe you've heard it, when in Rome, right? Do as the Romans do, right? When in Rome, do as as the Romans. It's kind of like our saying here now, what happens in Vegas, how do you know that? But that's the kind of place that Rome was. And so Paul was not at all out of touch with his culture. And can I just say this letter is not out of touch with our culture, And so as troubled as you may be by what the text says, you might have to wrestle 
with this question, what has authority in my life? Is it the word of God or is it the culture that I live in? Because our culture is currently saying some things that are directly opposed, not just to what we're reading today, but to so many things in the pages of Scripture. And so as I was preparing this message, I, I wrestled with it a lot. I told my wife, this is one of the, the toughest messages I've ever had to write. I wrote it, rewrote it, thought about it, went back again so many times because I want to speak truth to you today, but I also want to do it with grace. Uh, be, because especially if you're new to the Lord, there are, there are certain understandings that you're carrying with you, but I want you to know the Word of God is going to challenge you a little bit this morning, and I hope that's all right. And so before we read the text, I want to pray. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit just to soften our hearts so that we would receive what the Word of God is saying. And and I want to ask the Holy Spirit to lead me this morning as we speak, that that what I share this morning would come forward with truth, but it would also be full of grace. And so, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word. Lord, we believe it's living and active. We thank you, Lord, because you've given uh, your Word as a guide to us. Lord, you are the creator and you've created us with a purpose, but you haven't left us without, Lord, instruction. And so we thank you for your word that instructs us, that ultimately leads us into the life you desire us to live. We give you thanks for it, Lord. As we approach the text, we do so reverently, but we also do so expectantly, believing that you desire to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now before I jump into the text this morning, I do want to remind you what we talked about last week. Uh, Verse 18, chapter 1, verse tells us, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We're going to build, again, on this topic of the wrath of God over the next few weeks. But but just a little review. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to the message. It'll help things make more sense as we go forward. Um, But we said this last week, that God's wrath is not God losing his temper. Remember? Often we have this picture of God in the clouds and he's shooting down the lightning bolt, right? Get that picture out of your mind, okay? Because God's wrath is not about him losing his self-control. His wrath is actually connected to his character. And when we talk about the character of God, we understand he's altogether good and he's altogether holy. He's perfect and he's just. And because of this, when we see evil in the world, when he sees evil, he must respond to that evil. It's not a loving thing to do to ignore evil or to ignore justice. Would you agree? And so we said last week, because God is love, he must hate. That sounds crazy, but think about it. He must hate evil, right? He must hate all that stands opposed to him and his character. And so the wrath of God, I think the best way to describe it is a precise, calculated, and justified response to evil by a God who is altogether good. His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, there's, there's ungodliness or, or godlessness, we could say, and that's a putting off of God. That's a putting off of, of his ways. And this godlessness always results in wickedness or unrighteousness. One of the primary ideas that Paul's going to build upon in this letter to the Romans is that in every generation there is ungodlessness that leads to unrighteousness. And so last week we spoke some about the general revelation of God. You remember that, right? How God has communicated uh, to this world, how he's shown himself very clearly through nature. God has made himself visible in every time and every place. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so if we look out at the natural world around us, it's almost like 
the truth of God comes at us from every single direction, right? But Paul tells us what mankind does with that truth. He says they suppress it. And we really saw this threefold process of suppressing truth in our text last week. First of all, mankind ignores God, right? Even though he knows he exists, he doesn't glorify him, he, he doesn't give him the thanks that he deserves. We see this in our society today. Media ignores God. Our universities ignore God. We act as though he doesn't exist, that he's got nothing to do with our world right now. And you know what? Even if he exists, he's irrelevant. We ignore his word and we ignore his direction. And so the first step is to ignore God, but then it progresses to the second step in the process, and that is that man will imitate God. So get this, man claims God doesn't exist, but then they claim to be God, or you could say they act a lot like God. They believe they can handle all of life's problems, they, they understand everything completely, and they know exactly how to respond. So they claim God doesn't exist, and then they act like God, and finally they suppress the truth by choosing substitute gods. And so as we jump into our text, the Apostle Paul is going to trace the effects of godlessness in a society. And he's going to begin to talk about the wickedness that inevitably follows a rejection of God. Understand this, when men lose God, they always lose themselves. Write that down. When men lose God, they always lose themselves. Maybe we need a little more light in the house, right, man? So you can see your Bible, so you can write down, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Now, I don't know if you know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Anyone know that name? He was a, a famous writer, lived uh, in communist Russia. He became a, a very outspoken critic of the Soviet Union and, and was persecuted for that. He wrote so much about uh, Russia's history and the, and the evil that he saw, and he really argued that it was the de-Christianization of Russian culture that was responsible for the Bolshevik Revolution. In 1983, he received an award for his writing and for his work, and he said this in his address. Listen to this. He said, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offering the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies. I've already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that unheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this happens. Right now, as we look at the world around us, there seems to be no answers to the moral dilemmas that we're facing. And you can ask this morning, how in the world did we get here? I would like to echo the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, men have forgotten God. And that's why all this has happened. And with that backdrop, with that understanding, I want to read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. It says, therefore, in other words, because of this, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, some of you have been reading through Romans chapter 1, and you, again, know why I said this is a challenging message, but it's not one I want to avoid. And, and I think if we look at it correctly, it's going to help us understand the world that we're living in. But the first thing you need to see as we dive into the text is that every one of us is found in this passage, okay? Please don't fall into the temptation to let this be a finger-pointing text. If you're going to point the finger anywhere, point it here, okay? Because eventually Paul was going to say this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so as we look at this rebuke of society together, this should not be us looking down on others, but together recognizing that every one of us is in need of salvation. But if we go back to that idea of general revelation, if this revelation allows us to know God exists, there is also in every society around the world, understand this, a certain understanding of morality, right? There are certain things that every society knows that's just wrong. Now, how do we get there? Well, I believe God put that within us. And, and so we have this general revelation of God. We have this, this moral order that he's given to us, right, this revelation. And, and those things actually become a restraining force against evil in our world. The general revelation that we have that God exists keeps mankind from going completely wild. But then the question comes to the surface, what happens when mankind rejects that knowledge? What happens when mankind rejects that knowledge? What happens when he says, well, I don't want God. I don't want to know anything about him. I don't, I don't want his rules. I don't want to hear about his plans. What happens at that point in any society is the restraining wall begins to be taken away. And when the restraining wall is taken away, sin comes in like a flood. Sin becomes so pre prevalent because there's no restraining wall of the knowledge of God. If you remove God from a society, sin just keeps going. And then you ask, well, where do we put a boundary, right? Where do we put a boundary? In our culture today, understand, you can't put a boundary. It's amazing because even 10 years ago, if you said that marriage is between a man and a woman, most people would say, yes, of course it is. That was even the message that was coming from the White House at that point, and that message has radically changed. So if you make the claim 10 years later, you will be attacked. But the great sin of this passage is right there in that phrase, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks because this is where it all starts. Listen, if you remove God from a society, sin just keeps going until it's all gone. Mankind literally destroys itself. 
And, and so it's the grace of God working in any culture that gives us the revelation of God, and that's what holds back sin. That's what restrains evil. But there comes a time when people continue to reject God that it causes him to say, you know what, I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. Eventually, God will answer their prayers, if you will. He says, in essence, okay, if that's what you want, I'm going to let you have that. He begins removing his revelation from the minds of men by removing that restraining grace. And when that happens in any society, all hell breaks loose. And we see it, right? The foundations begin to crumble. That's what's taking place right now in our world, right? When we talk about critical theory, I don't have time to get into all of that today, but really critical theory, what it does is it criticizes everything right? All the, the questions being asked now, they're attacking the foundation of our nation. Well, well, were our founding fathers really Christian? Did they really know God? Did they really have a godly perspective? Or is America inherently evil? Again, it's an attack on the foundations. It's an attack on the foundations of what historically has been a godly nation. Now, is America perfect? Absolutely not. <laughs> no nation is. And yet America has been a restraining force against evil in our world for almost 250 years. But hear me, it's not just the foundations of morality that are being attacked right now. It's the foundations of logic and reason. Think about where we are as a society today. Just think about this for a moment. When people will lift up or exalt the worship of Satan, right? Think about our schools today where kids need permission to get a Tylenol but can get an abortion without your consent and without your knowledge. Listen, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, you got to say that makes no sense. <laughs> like one is way more serious than the other. Logic and, and reason is out the window. When, when people will tell you the power of a crystal to heal you, but they'll call you insane if you claim that Jesus can heal. Now, there, there's this phrase in our text, and, and it's repeated three times. Okay, Anytime you see something repeated three times, that pattern, it should get your attention. Did you see the phrase? Uh, it's in verse 24. Verse 26 and verse 28, it's that phrase, God gave them up. NIV says God gave them over. Now, what does that mean? There, there are some that think that, that God simply gives up on people when they do evil. It's this perspective that God just kind of washes his hands of them because they're so dirty and so filthy. But let me be clear, that's not what this account is saying. This is not God giving up on people. It's not God standing with his arms folded and saying, I just don't know what to do with you anymore. I'm going to let you go sin, right? This passage is also not describing people who are forced into sin because really all sin is the natural disposition of man. And so God giving them up or giving them over is simply saying, okay, you can have what you want. <laughs> you can have what you really desire. And then as man pursues that sin, which he so desperately desires, one of the consequences of that sin is more and greater sin. Listen to me, sin will always take you further than you want to go, and it will always cost you more than you intended to pay. But God doesn't need to force men to go where they want to go. He lets them go that direction, and there are consequences that follow. But yet the testimony of so many that I've heard is this, man, I got exactly what I wanted, and it destroyed me. But I thank God because that's ultimately what led me to the cross. Amen? So, so there's three times that, that we see this phrase, God gave them up, and each time it identifies what's happening in a culture that has rejected God. Again, Paul's writing this 2,000 years ago, but you will see the significance today. It says, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, 
to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The first sign of wickedness in a society that has rejected God, write this down, is widespread sexual immorality. Because idolatry, idolatry always leads to immorality. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Today, our society doesn't only worship images and idols, but so often we worship ideas. Ideas are idolized in in the same way that false gods were lifted up in the ancient world. Because mankind runs after other gods and refuses to submit to the general revelation they've been given, because they don't glorify God or thank Him, God removes His restraints from society so that what was previously done in secret is now brought out into the open. And not only is it accepted, but it begins to be celebrated. When you see this in any society, you need to understand it's a sign of God's wrath. To a people who are trying to satisfy all their desires without God, God says, I'm going to let you try that out. Because you don't believe me that there's ultimately fulfillment and satisfaction in my plan for your life. Because you don't trust me as the creator to to tell you what you were created for, I'm going to let you go that way. I'm going to let you go after that which you desire. And then there's this idea of sowing and reaping. When we do certain things, we reap the results, right? And so Paul begins with this idea of sexual immorality as a sign of God's judgment. It's the first sign of a nation that has rejected God. Notice God gives them up to what was already in their hearts. There's already this lusting for impurity, and because of that, they dishonor their bodies among themselves. This is at the heart of the spiritual battle that's taking place all around us right now. Because for us as believers, we know that it's the Word of God that renews our minds, right? That takes us from that fallen state. But apart from that, we are by nature selfish individuals. We are by nature those who would use the bodies of others for selfish pleasure. Now, that could take on many different forms, but the root is the same. Whether you talk about fornication or adultery or homosexuality, they all have the same root, okay? They are all attempts by sinful man or woman to use the body of someone else for selfish gratification. And the only way to to really justify that kind of behavior is to reject God and to reject his standard of right and wrong. And so in this first section here, he's talking about heterosexual practices that are impure. We know this, that God created marriage as a covenant relationship. It's one of the most important relationships that exists because it gives us a picture of Jesus' relationship to the church, right? And so marriage is not something we should take lightly. It's not a covenant or a promise that we should enter into flippantly, okay? And God honors sex within the covenant of marriage, but outside of that covenant, Scripture says it's impurity. And so if you're in a serious relationship with someone, let me just say this, of the opposite sex, and you're talking about marriage, and you're considering moving in together, just let's give this a test run. I want to see how this works out. I would encourage you don't do it. God's blessing is within the covenant of marriage. And it's amazing because even the research has shown it's not a good idea to live together before marriage. Like we know the divorce rate in our world is very high. In fact, the only reason the divorce rate has gone down this past decade is because fewer and fewer people are actually getting married. But if you look at the statistics, they show that couples who live together before marriage actually have a 48% greater chance of divorce. It's almost like God knows what he's talking about. Listen, marriage is a beautiful thing, but it's also challenging. Don't make it more challenging than it needs to be. (laughs) 
If you're living together and you want the blessing of the Lord on your life, get married. Make a covenant to one another. I'll hold to my father's promise. I'll buy the KFC for the reception. That's on me, right? (laughs) But make it right. Some of you just, you need to make it right. Now, verse 25 goes on to speak of an exchange. And it's a terrible exchange. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. In other words, they had the truth, right? They had a hold of it, and they exchanged it for a lie. Why? Because they wanted to worship the creation, in this case, their own bodies rather than the creator. Here's the thing about idolatry. If we can take God and we can reduce him in our mind to simply being on the animal level, right? The idols often look like animals. Or if we can ignore him altogether, then we, we can become our own God. And creation actually becomes more desirable to us than the creator. Instead of pursuing God, we pursue his creation. But when you embrace the passions of this fallen world, I want to tell you, without God, those passions will destroy you. If you seek after the things of this world, believing that those things will fulfill you, you're believing the oldest lie in the book. That's what Satan told to Eve, that God is somehow holding out on you because he doesn't want you to be happy. When we think that we're going to find all of our fulfillment in a sexual relationship or a sexual activity, God says, no, that's not going to work, but keep going that direction. And God says, well, you're obviously not going to believe until you try it out. So the restraints, again, are removed. And God allows, again, what once were immoral practices to become accepted. All understand this, and mankind indulges in these things, but yet they find themselves dissatisfied and empty. And relationship after relationship, more hopeless, more broken than when they started. But then we see the second sign of godlessness in the society, a godless society. In the next two verses, Paul speaks of what he calls dishonorable passions. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. The second sign of a godless society is homosexuality. Now, don't miss the connection here because Paul says right? They exchanged the truth for a lie. Earlier, they exchanged the creator for created things. But but here's another thing that takes place, and it's just as devastating. It's the exchange of natural relations for unnatural ones. To use a woman as a man or a man as a woman, but Paul makes it clear. He says this is unnatural. Really, the Greek says it is against nature. Now, there's many passages of Scripture that I could go into today where God condemns homosexuality. I don't have the time to go through them all, but I can say this. It's an easy search, okay? And so if you really believe in the authority of Scripture, the answer's there, okay? It's clear what God thinks of this practice. But even without Scripture, understand we have a natural revelation. We look at the animal world, right? And even nature argues against homosexuality. And so the initial conviction of the sin comes from nature, and because of that, the first argument so often from the homosexual community is, well, uh, it's natural, right? You'll hear people say, well, I was born like this. Is that true, right? That's an argument from nature, though. They're saying, well, no, I was born like this. There's only one problem with that argument, okay? With all the studies and all the scientific research that's been done, none of them back up this idea that people are born gay. 
And so then the argument comes from people who will say, well, as long as I can remember, I always had this desire. But let's be honest, just because you have a desire as a child to do something doesn't mean it's a good desire, doesn't mean it's healthy, doesn't mean it will bring you fulfillment. Moms, you know this. There's plenty of desires that your children have where you've got to be like, stop that, right? Some they act on. They're not all sanctioned as being good just because they have that desire. And so your job, moms and dads, is to correct and to instruct and to lead, right? We see, hear me, as we see this restraint cast off in society, we're seeing it very clearly now in this push towards transgenderism. We're being told if your child has a certain desire, the most loving thing you can do is to encourage that desire. Parents, hear me. God has placed you in the lives of your children to be a guide. He's placed you there to give direction. He's placed you there to instruct and to, hear me, to lead. And if anyone tries to usurp that usority, that, that authority, that place in your life, if anyone tries to usurp that role in your life and, and tells your children, well, I'm going to believe your truth, whatever it is, get your children away from those people, okay? And here's why. Because there's this lie being told right now that if you desire something, even as a three-year-old, you should be allowed to follow that desire to its logical end, or can I just say illogical end? Because when we talk about love, it is never a loving thing to go along with a lie. It's never a loving thing to go along with a lie that says the only way you'll find fulfillment is to give into this desire. And here's the thing, when we talk about homosexuality, there's a, a few things that we see in the text that go directly against what our society is telling us right now. And so here becomes, comes the wrestling, right? Society's telling me this, but the text says this. The, the first thing that, that's said about the practice of a homosexuality, again, is that it's unnatural. That's what the Word of God clearly says. But the other thing you need to see here, and this is important, is that it's insatiable. The, the text says that these men who practice homosexuality, they were consumed with passion for one another. What you don't hear about the homosexual lifestyle is that these passions are insatiable. In other words, they're not satisfied ever. I encourage you to begin looking at some of the statistics regarding homosexuality, the homosexual community, all right? I, I think we need to understand this. I think as a church, we need to approach these things with clarity and also compassion, but you can't have compassion unless you have clarity, right? And so some of the statistics, you'll see that 40%, right now, 40% of homosexual males have never had a relationship that lasted more than a year. And only about 10% have been in a relationship that lasted more than three years. 60% of homosexual males have relations regularly with strangers. Why? Because Scripture tells us the desire is insatiable. And so within that community, there's a very high level. There are very high levels of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, very high levels of depression and suicide, anxiety, STDs, right? And so the facts say what our text says. It says here that there is a due penalty for the sin of homosexuality. Now, why do I share that? Because un un unless you begin to look at some of the statistics and, and do some research, you will not have an accurate picture of what's going on the, in the homosexual community. I mean, we watch TV, we watch the movies, right? It's, it's a picture of someone who's got it all together. Perfect dresser, great taste in design, winsome, the most witty in the room, the, the life of the party. That's the way homosexuality is usually presented. It's this picture of the sophisticated lifestyle with the finest of everything. But if you do the research and if you want to start doing the digging a little, you'll find that that's just not reality. 
a great source if you want to understand more about what's taking place in, in many people's life who, who struggle in this way is a book by Thomas E. Schmidt titled Straight and Narrow, Compassion and Clarity in the Homosexual Debate. Again, as a church, I believe we need both compassion and clarity around this issue because you can't have compassion unless you have clarity, right? And, and so many have, have bought into the lie that there's, there's fulfillment here, right? And so I'm going to go after it. But if we look at Scripture, again, it says there's actually a penalty in regards to homosexuality, but also in regards to the transgender debate right now. Just begin to listen to some of the stories of people who have detransitioned the horrors they've gone through, right? And hear me, I I say this with love and I say this with compassion. It is never a loving thing to reinforce a lie. Instead, we need to come against the lies because as long as the homosexual believes this is a biological condition, there's nothing I can do about it, well, then there's no hope, there's no help. But if we understand that homosexuality is a sin like other sins, then it can be forgiven, amen? And you can find freedom from it. Then by the power and the the grace of God, there is tremendous hope. And sadly, many churches are falling into the trap of going along with the lie. But if we are to love people in their sin, we don't reinforce the lie that holds them captive. Are you with me today? Again, Scripture makes it clear. Homosexuality is unnatural, it's insatiable, and it's also completely devastating. So you have to ask, what is the most loving way to respond to this lifestyle? Is the proper response just to kind of close our eyes and accept it and say, oh, it's only natural? Or is it to say, this is devastating and destructive and God has a better plan for your life, which is more loving? Yes, church, we absolutely need to extend grace. Hear me today. I don't want you to miss this. We need to extend grace. We need to extend love to anyone caught in any sin. We need to be as patient with others as God was with us, amen? But at the same time, we are called to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. One of the reasons that the lies have been able to continue to grow and hold so many people in captivity is that the church has stayed silent. The ideology behind homosexuality and now transgenderism has grown because the church has stayed quiet while those who promote this lifestyle have been at work and they've been hard at work. But the world's efforts to call these lifestyles normal forces them to turn a blind eye to the statistics and to the consequences of these behaviors. And it's amazing because in every other area of our culture, the government wants to get involved to keep healthcare costs down, right? But when you talk about sexual behavior, whether it be pornography or adultery or homosexuality or transgenderism, there are major health costs, and yet our culture keeps pushing for more freedom. And so how do we respond to what's going on in our world right now? Our attitude should be the same as it is to any addictive or a sinful behavior. Our understanding should be that Christ came to set the captive free, amen? Christ came to set us free. He, he has a plan for your life, and he can break any addiction. But hear me, don't you dare think that anyone is beyond the reach of God. Don't you dare think that anyone is beyond the reach of God. Just because someone struggles with something you don't struggle with, <laughs> love on them regardless of their sin. And at the same point, direct them to the freedom that's available in Jesus. Don't go along with the lies, but at the same time, please don't act unloving. Now, the final mark of a godless society, we're given in in verses 28 through 31, and this is a long list, right? We read through it together. It's, It's quite a list. 
And it's a list of all of these awful sins. But remember, it's a mark of a civilization that's nearing collapse because there's this growing hatred and, and there's this growing disregard for other human beings. As Paul speaks here, he speaks of a debased mind. And here's what it, it literally means. It means an unacceptable mind. It's a mind that cannot be lived with. It's one that will not fit into civilization or society. A debased mind is a mind that only knows how to destroy and fragment and tear down everything it touches. Just think about what's happening in the world around us today. The debased mind is marked by increasing anger and cruelty and violence. And every day we open up social media, right, and we see senseless destruction. We we see violent acts on innocent and and often helpless people. But there's a couple of words that should jump out from this list to you, okay? We could do a whole sermon series just on this list. We would be here until Jesus comes, right? But you see that word gossips? Anyone see that? You read it, you're like, what's that doing in there? Let me say there's a reason that's in there, okay? There's a reason that makes the list. Please do not think lightly about the destructive power of gossip. Please guard your tongue. Thank you. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. James says amen. That's all I'm going to say about that. Again, we could do a whole sermon series on this, but there's two more things that I just want to focus on before we close today. One is the word boastful, and the other is that phrase disobedient to parents. And all the parents are like, yes. Going on that one, Pastor. Going on that one, right? Not because it's Mother's Day, but we're going to go in on that one. Okay? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul is highlighting some of the sins of his day, and he includes many of the same words that we just read. He says, men will be boasters, they will be proud, they will be blasphemers, they'll be disobedient to their parents. Now, that word boasters in the Greek is the word eleison, and it's only used two times in the New Testament, and one of those is right here in our passage in verse 30. And really, this word describes someone who's a bragger, okay? He's a liar. You ever have someone tell a story, and you know they're making the story bigger? (laughs) Yeah, right? The fish was that big, right? A bragger, a boaster, a liar. It's someone who's so committed to their agenda that they're willing to exaggerate or overstate the facts, stretch the truth, even embellish a story. They will even lie if it gets them to the goal they desire. Today we call this situational ethics. Okay, it's adjusting your morals and your beliefs to fit whatever situation you're in. And sadly, much of the church is doing that today. They're adjusting their morals and their beliefs to fit the situation. But I'm thankful for the Word of God because the Word of God gives us a grounding. It gives us a foundation that does not change. And so moral absolutes right now, they're, they're becoming replaced by what we would call floating ethics, right? And many of the things we talked about today that are clearly stated in Scripture are seen as obsolete. When the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is replaced by an immoral world that wants to remove God from every courthouse, every place of government, when this immoral minority, and I will say it is a minority, wants to turn our nation into a secular society, one that's free even from the mention of God, all that's left is situational ethics. But here's the amazing thing. As we talk about the signs of a culture, that has rejected God, we see all these unrighteous deeds in front of us as our culture carries these things out in a very bold and, dare I say, proud way. Okay, Pride could not be a more fitting word. 
The word in the Greek is the word huperphanos. Huper means above or superior in phanos, not thanos, phanos. It means to be manifested, right? And those two words give us this picture. I want you to see this. It's a picture of someone who sees themselves above the rest of the crowd. Listen, I I don't believe that, that there's a more accurate description of those who would like to remove God from our lives and from our society and force their agenda on us. According to Paul's prophetic words in 2 Timothy 3, 2, this is a mark of a society that is at the end of the age. But wait, there's more. In the midst of these last days where situational ethics are elevated and biblical absolutes are thrown out the window, Paul prophesied that it's going to produce an epidemic of children who are disobedient to parents. The word disobedient in the Greek is antipis. The root word is pithos, okay? It means to persuade. And so antipis takes on the opposite meaning. It's this idea of being unpersuadable or uncontrollable and therefore unleadable. And so it actually carries this idea of children that parents can no longer persuade and no longer control and no longer exercise authority over. In other words, there's a day coming when children will no longer be required to submit to or follow the orders and the leadership of their mom and dad. It's already happened in Washington State. I don't know if you're familiar with the bill that's happened, passed out there this, this just recently. It's just as Paul prophesied. There would be a day that would come when parents would be under pressure to surrender their parental authority to rule their own children, to lead their own children, to teach their own children. The text in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is very similar, though, to the words of our text. Again, the, the same words, boasters and disobedient to parents. And, and if you put it all together, the interpretive translation of that verse in 2 Timothy 3 is this. These boasters are so committed to their own self-promotion and agenda that they're willing to exaggerate, overstate the facts, stretch the truth, embellish a story, and even lie if it will get them the position or help them reach the goal they desire. They're arrogant, hearty, impudent, snooty, and insolent. They disdain, mock, slander, and speak ill of anyone that stands in the way of their plans. And in this environment, parents will no longer be able to persuade, control, lead, or exercise authority over their children. Understand, these are all signposts of the last days. And it certainly feels like the last days are upon us. But I want to encourage you, church, today. I want to encourage you, moms, today. I want to encourage you, parents, today. Just because this is what will happen in the world in the last days doesn't mean it needs to happen to you. These are events that will happen in the world, but understand, not in the church of the living God. It's one of the reasons that we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We don't belong to this world system. And since the Holy Spirit is warning of these things in advance, we need to take heed of that prophetic warning, and we need to begin to take some action. We need to begin to protect our homes and protect our families and continue to look forward and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are lost and without Christ. Hear me, church, as challenging as this time is, I believe it can be the greatest hour for the church. Would you stand with me as the worship team comes? As challenging as this time is, I believe this can be the greatest hour for the church if if we'd keep ourselves pure in the love of God. 
if we would separate from the lost standards of the world, if we would maintain the moral code of God in our hearts and in our homes, if we would let the light of Jesus shine in the darkness that seems to have flooded every corner of society. Hear me, church. People are desperately looking right now for solutions to their moral dilemmas. And we have the answer to their need. But, but we need to be committed to letting our light shine. We need to be committed to letting it shine brightly. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, it's against the backdrop of sin. It's against the backdrop of all this immorality and ungodliness that the gospel actually shines the brightest. So I want you to take a moment, even right now, before we close with a song, and say, God, would you equip me? Would you equip me to live in this society? You've called me here for a reason. Again, listen, it's not so much different than the world that Paul lived in 2,000 years ago. The results of sin is still the same. And as we, we talk about where we are as a nation, my, my wife and I have said this very many times, we know the consequences of sin. We know where sin leads. And I can't help but think that five years, 10 years down the line, there's going to be a flood of broken people that are going to be coming through the doors of this church. Maybe it's even suited. I don't know what that looks like. But you need to continue to hold up the truth, church. You need to continue in a loving way, not to, to reinforce a lie, but to say, I have truth here. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about freedom that's available. Let me tell you about hope that's available. And so take a moment before we close with a song and just say, God, empower me this week. Maybe you have relationships with some in the homosexual community. Praise God you have those connections. You have those friendships. Praise God you can speak into those, those areas. And Man, do it with love. Do it with grace. But don't compromise on truth. Because when people are broken, when people are hurting, they're going to come looking for truth. They're going to come looking for truth. And so, Lord God, we just pray. Pray you would equip us as your church, Lord God. We've, we believe that you've brought us here for such a time as this. Lord, as we look at what's happening in the nation around us, Lord, a nation that has in so many ways rejected you and said, I want nothing to do with you. Lord God, we see the consequences of that. We see the sin and we see the destruction around us. But again, Lord, you've placed us here for such a time as this. And so help us to shine, Lord God. Help us to shine as light. Help us to, to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ and to declare there is hope and there is truth and there is freedom to be found. Lord God, empower us this week by your Holy Spirit. Lord God, may we hear what you're saying and may we respond in a way that's full of truth and full of grace. In your name we pray, amen. Let's worship together today before we leave this place.